0: I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast. I hope you are really well this week. Today we are going to be chatting about all things hope and kindness. How beautiful is that? And don't we need a lot of that at the moment? I know that I need constant daily reminders and practices to keep me connected compassion for myself compassion for others and hope and bernadette russell is my guest she's an expert on hope and kindness she's written the little book of kindness the little book of wonder and her new book which is called how to be hopeful which is a celebration of the power of hope. So in this conversation, we talk about kindness, about how one small incident totally changed the trajectory of her life. And we really deep dive into hope and how actually Bernadette very wisely says that hope is daring. And it is daring to hope because we might feel that if we don't get what we hope for, we'll be disappointed. But she shares how actually being hopeful is the only way to be if we want to connect with those beautiful feelings like joy and positivity. We also talk about the news and have a fascinating discussion about treading this line between knowing what's going on in the world but not feeling all consumed by it. And also the positivity bias of children and what we can learn from our children. You know, I loved this conversation. It really brought home to me something that I deeply believe which is that it's the small daily actions that we take that make the difference in our lives. Not the big acts that we do once a month or once a year even, but actually it's the small daily things that interwoven into our busy lives that make a radical difference on how we feel. So I hope you really enjoy this conversation. As ever, please do share the conversation. Also, if you want to look up any of the resources that Bernadette or I mention, or maybe you prefer reading than listening, then there are full transcripts on the website, motherkind.co. Just search under podcast, you'll see this episode And there is a full transcript, show notes, timestamps, which shows you what we were talking about at different times during the conversation. And there are tons of freebies on my website. So I have a guide for how to start to reconnect to you many of those small daily actions I was just referring to are in there. There's also my reading list. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you will know that reading is my thing. Learning is my thing. I average a book a week and I have pulled together the most powerful books I've ever read on parenting, transformation, healing, feeling happier, defining our own version of success and a vision for our lives. They are all in there. So please do have a look at the website. It's totally free. So, you can download it at motherkind.co. Here is the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Bernadette. I'm so excited to be connecting with probably the most beautiful energy in the world in this conversation, which is hope.
1: Oh, it's really lovely to speak to you as well. I've been looking forward to this conversation.
0: So, I've read your book which I found beautiful and just underscored for me so many ways that I tried to live my life. And so I'm really curious, how did you come to think so deeply about hope and its importance, particularly in the times that we find ourselves in now? So I've been
1: focused on sort of compassionate practice and kindness and wonder and beauty and joy and all that kind of thing for the last, 10 years and I would say around a year ago I started to notice increasingly when I was doing workshops or when I was connecting with community groups that though people were doing amazing things amazing community initiatives or kindness um, or self-compassion practice they were still expressing a sort of hopelessness and I have to say this was largely connected with the news so that became a sort of really big issue for me and then I remember hearing That wonderful Greta Thunberg talking about how she didn't need our hope because the uh, house was on fire. And I thought about that. I love her and I absolutely champion her and all the other many amazing young climate activists. But I was like, I don't know about that. I think I need to be hopeful. I think I need to think that in order to affect change, whether that's in my life or in my community or in the wider world, that there's a possibility it might be effective. So if I started thinking about that and I thought, and I think other people need hope because otherwise despair can freeze you and immobilise you. And that's the last thing we need at the moment. Again, whether that's on a personal level or a community level or on a global level. So I thought, gosh, I really want to focus on this for a bit. Um, the first stop thing I did was reread the story of Pandora's box. Do you remember that story? yeah. Yeah, that is exactly what I expected to say. Most people are like, kind of. So I think it's one of those stories. So basically, very simply, it's one of the Greek myths. It was recorded by Hesiod in the the 7th century. And he wrote down the story. Pandora gets given a jar. It actually wasn't a box in the original story. And she's told not to open it, you know. And being a brilliantly curious young woman, she does open it. (laughs) And out flies all the troubles of the world, greed and misery and hunger and jealousy and envy and violence and she's like, oh no, that's torn it. So she puts the lid back on and then she hears whispering coming from it again and she decides to open it she's like, really bad things have already happened. And inside it nestles hope and described a sort of tiny plucky little hope and this beautiful tiny little creature to embattle all the evils of the world. And I was just like, wow, that's an amazing story that hope is the light that helps us, helps human beings combat all of those difficulties. So that was my starting point, and I really liked it. That it was a, that it was a young woman <laughs> that both released those things and released hope. So I just started a journey of talking to people, and I made those conversations and that journey as wide and broad as possible. So I just looked for people who were doing hopeful things, who used hope, and I thought about children and hope and how hopeful and optimistic they are, and how and why we lose it as adults. I looked at people that were doing stuff in their community and how they utilised hope and where they found hope. So I just spoke to as many people as possible from all over the world and researched as many people as possible all over the world and to sort of go on a little journey to discover hope and to find out how it can help us. That was amazing. I finished the first draft (laughs) and then lockdown. How was that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing because I was like first draft, you know, amazing. I sort of, what an amazing journey. But none of us, I didn't see COVID coming. So lockdown happened and I was like, oh, wow. Okay, so I have to accommodate this. It's really important. Obviously, it's a global experience. What happened actually was I was incredibly moved, as I think many people were during that period, by this absolute explosion of compassion and kindness and good humour and generosity And time for thinking and time for people to have more times with friends and family and people getting to exercise or think or dream. And they just seemed to be suddenly a reconsidering, a time for us to reconsider in the pause, how we lived or how we might like to live. And also loads of kindnesses. People were really looking after each other, loads of mutual aid groups springing up and people doing things. I was like, here's hope here on abundant display. And actually, even though obviously we're only a short way down this long journey, we don't know how we're going to emerge on the other side of it, I think there's a lot to hold on to from what we're experiencing in lockdown. Do you?
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, things like there were seven times more volunteers for the NHS than than were actually needed in the end, you know? And for me, that is hope in action. I think hope is a you know, you talk about this in the book. I think it's an action. I think it's something that you can learn and embody and do. I think you can be hopeful about things. And I want to get into kind of why, you know, and I know there's lots and lots of science and research behind why that is such a positive force in the world, you know, is to be hopeful so I'm wondering as well, I'm really interested in you talking about kindness and you have a fascinating journey around kindness. So can you tell us how, I think I heard you say it was the August the 11th, what? Yeah. <laughs> tell us how that date changed the trajectory of your life.
1: It's August the 18th, 2011, which is long, long nearly 10 years ago now. So I mainly work in the theatre, which means that I often end up in the Edinburgh Festival in August, which is fabulous. And that year I was at the Edinburgh Festival and I was in my favourite cafe in Edinburgh the morning of August the 18th, 2011, and the TV was on in the cafe, but the sound was turned down in the way they sometimes do in cafes. And on the screen was just these horrific images of like London on fire. And I don't know whether people will remember, but It was the beginning of the Mm -hmm. riots that raged in London as a result of the killing of Mark Duggan in Tottenham by the police. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So there'd been a peaceful protest by his family and friends, which had exploded into these riots, which then spread to Birmingham and Manchester and Bristol and elsewhere. And it was horrible because I live in London and I was a long way from home at a festival. It seemed really incongruous to be enjoying myself you know, drinking coffee whilst my friends' homes were on fire. But it felt like the straw that broke the camel's back, or rather the thing that motivated me, because I'd been thinking for a long time, as we all had about, you know, climate crisis and famine and war and all those kind of big headline terrible problems of the world and thinking in the background as always, what can I do about these it's so massive? What on earth can I do in the face of these enormous troubles so i came home from edinburgh came to london london was strangely quiet in the days afterwards and the riots had stopped and loads of beautiful things happened like people had made this thing called peckham peace Wall, where they put up beautiful post-it notes declaring their love of peckham and their love of their community and dan thompson had organized riot clean ups so people had just swept the streets clean and people were taking care of looking after each other so good stuff had happened i was still troubled i was like but what can i do what can i do and then I went to the post office, my local post office in Deptford and there was a boy in front of me in the queue and I sort of noticed him because in the aftermath of the riot, there'd been a lot of deeply unpleasant, anti-young, anti-poor, racist rhetoric in the press, horrible response to the riots and I was looking at him and I thought, I bet people looking at you and thinking you were one of the rioters because he had his hoodie on and his trainers on and that's kind of how everything was blamed on people who had that kind of appearance and I heard him say he didn't have enough money to pay for his stamp. So I said, oh, I got 50p. I gave it to him. It was 50p. It was nothing. And he was so grateful and so sweet. And I thought, that's interesting. And I kind of managed to put a smile on his face. It was just 50p. It was fine. So on the way home, I thought, maybe I'll just try doing that every day. Maybe I'll just try doing a little kind of thing. But it has to be for a stranger every day for a year and I'll see what that does. I'll see if a little act of kindness can change things. So it's a little bit impulsive. I didn't really make a plan. And it was a strange date to start a year project on because I guess
0: January <laughs> <First of> January.
1: <laughs> I know, right? January the 1st is the usual response. But I started without much of a plan. I am an introvert. So I didn't find it particularly easy to do that every day. But I did it every day. I made myself a set of rules. So I tried to make it creative and a different thing every day. And I was still on tour with lots of theatre shows, so I have to take it around with me, if you like, as a project. And it was utterly transforming, a truly life-changing, occasionally exhausting, initially
0: expensive. (laughs) (laughs) what What sort of things did you do?
1: So I tried to sort of do different things every day. I started posting quite early on social media, so lots of people gave me suggestions. It was nice. In the first few days, I did quite eccentric things like I I made a jar of sweets with a little label on saying, please take these and left them in a phone box in Deptford. I sorted out a load of books that I'd read, wrote reviews in the front and a little message and I gave them out to strangers.
0: Five
1: pound note inside a book in the self-help section in Waterstones. I decorated a complete stranger's pathway with flowers and a message for when they came home. I helped a lady carry her shopping, which was extremely strenuous. I had no idea how she carries this shopping normally. My arms were like a gibbons by the time I got <laughs> stretched log. I left notes on park benches. I kind of did loads of different things. People sent me suggestions. So, like, one time I rang some twins, twin brothers whose birthday it was, and sang them both happy birthday, which must have been very strange for them, but it was really good fun. I wrote letters to complete strangers on other people's suggestions, sent presents to people, re-gifted things I had, sponsored people. On Valentine's Day I ran around all over London and I gave away in total 150 Valentine's cards to complete strangers with the help of my friend Christina and Asif.
0: Yeah I did loads of things. It was so many beautiful, beautiful moments. The amazing thing that I find about kindness is it's so reciprocal. Yeah, it's like I'm kind, I make someone else feel good, but it kind of is selfish in some way because I feel so good when I'm kind. And there's so much science behind that. You know, it, it triggers serotonin and dopamine, doesn't it, in your brain. It's not that it's just fun to do, which it absolutely is, but it's also such a stress reliever. It lowers cortisol, the, the stress hormone,
1: doesn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm really glad that you framed it like that because I think sometimes, maybe unhelpfully, we tend to separate self-care or self-compassion and kindness to other people. Yeah. And I understand why that happens because I absolutely support the need to look after yourself. However, exactly as you said it, actually, they're the same. As you said, you do something kind for somebody, you get this, well, first of all, you get the, this sort of really nice knowledge that, do you know what, I've just done a good thing I've just done a good deed that was a nice thing to do well done me and there's nothing wrong with that you know but also as you said you get this rush of oxytocin and it's really lovely and good for you we give you a little helpers high I think it's described as so yeah really lovely so all the feel-good hormones as you said it counters cortisol which is a stress hormone so being kind to other people as you so beautifully put is a way of being kind to yourself they're not separate practices
0: yeah and there's that amazing it's coming to me you'll know it, I'm sure the famous Harvard study, or the Stanford study, where they separated the students into two groups. Do you know this one?: Carry on, I might do.: And they gave one student one I'm going to say it wrong, because it's, I haven't researched this. It. just come, I must have read it years ago, but they gave one set of students the grade that they wanted in their exam. And then they gave the other set of students the ability to help another get the grade that they wanted. So one set just got the grade. The other set had to help someone else get the grade. And what they showed by, I think, image mapping the brain was that the group that had helped someone else get the grade felt far happier about the result than those who just got it themselves. I love that.
1: I hadn't heard that. And I love that. And you're right as well. It's really worth sort of flagging that up in that science and scientific research has really supported the sort of lived experience of people who practice self-compassion and kindness and hopefulness. And it's really useful, I think, you know, for those things to coexist. You feel like you've got this really robust scientific evidence based on the research like you just mentioned so brilliantly. And you can experience it yourself real without being in a lab, without
0: conducting experiments. It's so true and important that because I think intuitively a lot of these things we know works as you say lived experience it is helpful to have that kind of actually this is a thing you know this is how my brain is responding to this and I love the underline that you're sharing which is around self-compassion and other compassion you know and I've studied with Dr Kristen Neff you know who came up with mindful self-compassion and the three pillars you know one of the pillars of self-compassion is common humanity it's so like interwoven that being kind to ourselves is part of seeing ourselves as part of a whole that's the way that we're wired yeah. and involved isn't it
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great point as well, because, again, that can roll back to what we were discussing earlier. That interconnectedness, that common humanity, that we are not alone, was highlighted and underscored and demonstrated during lockdown. It was really highlighted, I think. We are all connected. We sort of really profoundly understood that our lives are made richer and easier and actually possible by the person that delivers the parcels, by the doctors and nurses, by the refuge collectors, by the posties, you know, we understood that interconnectedness. And I remember thinking for the first time, wow, this dinner that I'm eating, the chain of connectedness, the chain of kindness, the chain of care, tracing right back to the farmer, but all the other people throughout really demonstrated just this little dinner I'm having it's nothing special it's yeah demonstrated what you're describing this interconnectedness and our beautiful interdependence I think
0: yeah. and I think it's so powerful to remember that I do this thing with Jesse, who's my four and a half year old where when we unpack the shopping because I hate unpacking the shopping I want to make it more fun so we say thank you and you know what it makes a chore absolutely delightful. So we'll get the strawberries out and I'll say, who do we need to thank, Jessie? And she'll say, thank you, farmer. And I'll say, thank you, lorry driver. You know, And for every single item, and we pack away quite a lot because there's four of us living in the house. And I feel like when we do that tiny little activity, we'd be doing that anyway, we'd be unpacking the shopping anyway. But just thinking about all the people that have helped bring us this food, I always feel amazing when I put the shopping away, it's just such a brilliant challenge to think about these small, as you say, seemingly, you know, the kind of just everyday humdrum of our lives, you know, getting places, doing things. But actually, when we stop and think about how many people have worked hard and sacrificed to bring us that, it's mind-blowing. And I think it's such a powerful way to Ease use anxiety and stress. Uh,
1: and exercise because I think that's sort of a really fantastic example of being in the moment you're in and making the most of your moment the moment you're in and kind of being creative and mindful in your just day-to-day life. I mean, also, there's no such thing as ordinary, is there? Everything is extraordinary in a way. Even unpacking with your daughter, you've made that into this beautiful, creative, therapeutic practice. And you can do that. At any moment, and it doesn't mean that you have to make enormous efforts or really work hard at everything. It's just a question of allowing yourself to make the most of all those moments, like unpacking your shopping or waving to your neighbor. I'm a big fan and a believer in small, achievable actions because most of the time it's all most of us have got time to do. So I think it's important to encourage people to take small like you've done with your brilliant shopping unpacking practice which I'm going to borrow
0: <laughs> yeah it's good and I think it's so funny <laughs> I think people think we're mad I love it we I have, especially yeah. also when we get out of the car at school she always says thank you car <laughs> I sometimes see some people thinking like why is that little girl thanking her car but it's because I always do it okay thanks car
1: a reminder of sort of how fortunate we are you know, you don't have to be self-flagellating about recognising privilege. I think it's really important. I think sometimes people think recognising what we're fortunate for can be self-punishing, but it's not. It's just like, wow, this is amazing,
0: you know. Yeah. How amazing is that? I didn't have to like walk slash I would have ended up carrying her because it's a really long way. I get to drive in a car to school. I loved that you pulled out in the moment you're in you know, because it brings me right back to the present. Otherwise, my mind's probably rushing off into what have I got to do, you know, blah, 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 my day, the stress, yada, 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 yada. Whereas in that micro moment, tiny moment of just remembering, actually, I'm really grateful that I could drive us to school. You know, I think like you're describing when you can piece your day together with those tiny moments, your experience of life shifts. How has your experience of life shifted now that you find yourself doing this work and living this way?
1: Well, I think the main shift that happened for me in the very first year, the year that spanned 2011 and 2012, was although I experienced lots of, as you said, lots of fantastic hormones as a result of this daily practice, the main thing actually was noticing kindness. So I noticed other people being kind to each other and I noticed when I received kindness and I noticed the frequency of that and actually thought wow the world is actually run on this which you could call love which I do call love yeah so the world is run on love and the world is prevocated on love and actually that's the dominant that's the common experience and that because we're sort of programmed to notice the negative in order to survive we actually can miss the fact that the world is run on love and kindness and that's the main experience so it gave me a great appreciation and sort of love and admiration for human beings, you know, and it got a lot of confidence and faith in human beings. So that was life-changing really that experience. And so and continuing on that to sort of think about hope and active hope, as you said, people taking hoping for something and taking action on it, that reconfirmed and deepened that actually because again, the world is full of people, some of them in what you might say dire or very challenging situations hoping for a brighter future and just getting on up and doing it getting on with it you know and so I'm encouraged even in the face of really big challenges like we have with the climate crisis at the moment that we are and we can see it throughout history we can see it in the present massively inventive and courageous and imaginative and active and we also are pro-social we try and help each other. We work and thrive and survive because we work in groups. And so I think focusing on kindness and hopes just made me have faith and believe and know also have a very deep knowledge, proven knowledge, that it's going to be all right, <laughs> we'll be
0: all right. And children are um, incredible at this. Yeah. They are naturally hopeful,
1: right? Yeah. Absolutely. So I work with children a lot. I'm really lucky to work with children a lot. I do a lot of storytelling, theatre making, creative writing workshops, all sorts. I'd say mainly with primary school, but not exclusively, sometimes younger, right up to teens. And I took sort of really noticed this. I was like, wow, kids are so optimistic. And also they'll say yes really easily and they imagine the best possible outcome. So I was interested in that. So I then chatted to my friend Marion Duggan. She volunteers as a performer for Clans Without Borders, and they work in refugee camps with refugee children and families, so like in Calais and Greece, in very different circumstances to the schools I work in. But Marion was the same. She was like, no, the kids will find joy wherever they can find it. They'll transform anything into a toy. They'll laugh. They just look for the joy and the fun to be had everywhere. They have this rose-tinted glasses. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. One... How come children have that? And two, what happens to us poor grown ups?
0: <laughs> so
1: again, I turned to science because I was like, let's see if anyone studied this. And I came across this amazing professor of psychology at the University of North Carolina. And her name is Janet J. Bosovsky. And she talked about children's rose tinted glasses or their positivity bias. And she described it as a tendency to focus on positive actions or selectively process information that promotes positive judgments about the self, others or even animals and objects. And it's not conclusive now yet why children are like that. But she thought it was due in part to positive social experience that most children are lucky to have early in life. Although lots of children who don't have that experience also optimistic and there's lots of conversations around maybe it's because children have to learn they're in full-on learning mode they have to pick up loads of stuff so their priority is learning rather than survival because they're protected by adults and then what happened they lose it around mid-childhood which is eight years to 12 years and then as adults as I discovered from studying Dr Rick Hansen we kind of get the opposite we develop a negativity bias but that simply put is because we have to notice negative things because they might threaten our survival that he talked a lot about you know that may be true if you were a sort of hunter gatherer living in quite extreme circumstances in ancient britain for example but it's not necessarily true now you don't have to remember all the negative things because they're not life threatening in the same way and he talked about retraining yourself so allowing yourself to focus on and recall and remember the good things that have happened in a day so they can be transferred to your long term memory and you can have a sort of library of hope to draw on. And I realised that without knowing his studies before, this is what I'd been doing. So I'm very resilient, I would say, and I bounce back from even quite terrible news because for 10 years, I've been gathering this library of hope, even though I didn't know that's what I was doing. Because every day, because of my practice... I was just noticing hopeful things and kindness every day. So I've probably got quite a big library now. So I find that fascinating. You know, like you were saying, the science is really useful, isn't it?
0: I've had a daily gratitude practice for a long time now, like same as you, like 10, 11 years. When I learn about negativity bias, it made absolute sense to me that left unchecked you know, without taking any counteraction, our brains are wired to focus on what's wrong. I think that's so powerful for us to understand because then it's like, okay, so that's the way that I'm wired is to focus on what's wrong. But we know there's tons of stuff going right. We just don't notice it. And it almost takes the judgment out because it's not your fault. You don't notice it. It's just the way our brains work. However, if you want to feel all the juicy, lovely things that you talk about in the book, you know, happier, more joyful, more hopeful, more curious, we have to do something to counter our brain chemistry, which is what you're describing, you know, looking for hope, looking for things to be grateful for, you know, my silly little shopping unpacking. And I think the gratitude practice, Sometimes when I talk about it, I get met with a bit of an eye roll. I don't know if you have the same thing, like, oh, God. But there is so much evidence now at the profound impact it can have and how simple it is. I don't know what you think about this, but
1: I know I've sometimes got that eye roll at gratitude practice. And I think it's probably, it's quite important to say, I get it. I think some days, certainly in the hardships that some people have experienced recently, gratitude can be hard to get to. On those days, there's no point beating yourself up because you can't think of anything. Another thing that's worth doing, I think really particularly relevant to carers and mothers actually is, okay, I don't feel (laughs) particularly grateful now, but sort of self-gratitude. So acknowledging that that day the day that you're in, you did this thing well, whether that was get dinner on the table or manage to have a shower, however I'm serious, however small. So sometimes if you can't reach for gratitude because the day's really challenging or you're having a very difficult day, I think it's good to take it back to yourself and say, actually, I did really well today because do you know what? I managed to brush my teeth or I did really well today because I tried out a new recipe or I did really well today because I managed the grumpy... Teacher who was in a bit of a bad mood with great patience, you know, or I did really well today because my kids were being really challenging and I remained patient. I don't know what you think about that, but I'm quite interested in sometimes bringing it back to yourself if you can't reach for gratitude on a particularly bad day. What do you think?
0: Well, I think this is where the gratitude kind of idea has got a bit lost in how mainstream it's come because I think you know some people will say to me, well my gratitude list often will say things like, I have a bed. I'm sat here writing this gratitude list in bed. I have a roof over my head. I'm breathing right now. I have access to clean fresh water that's not going to kill me. You know, the majority of the planet do not have that privilege. So I think you're absolutely right. I think gratitude, people often think about having to have big things. I don't think that's the power of it for me. The power of it for me is really specific, tiny little things. Like often on my gratitude list will be someone smiled at me and I connected with the smile in that moment. Well, that's really lovely. I guess it's one of the benefits that
1: comes of a long practice. You know, you've had that practice for over 10 years and you get better at it. That's not to say you can be bad at it, but you get a more profound understanding of it. So I think it's really important what you said about having had that practice for 10 years. You know, it's like saying, maybe this is going to be my life's work, just supporting my own positive mental health by just doing this every day. Um, You know, and being in the day, but sort of knowing that you'll do it and you'll get better at it. It doesn't sound strange, but I've certainly got better at being kind and I've certainly got better at being more hopeful because I've... Forgiven myself when it hasn't gone quite right, whatever that means, or I haven't quite managed it, and just done it again the next day. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Something I wanted to ask you about was hope and courage. Because I think that it can sometimes take courage to be hopeful. Yeah. And I'm really interested in how you feel about this because I've had some friends who have been desperate for a baby for example Mm -hmm. and they've said I'm not hoping because if it doesn't happen that would make it harder now I've got some lived experience and some science behind that I think hope is always always helpful but I'm so interested to hear your view on that and this kind of idea that sometimes being hopeful people can feel that it might make things harder Yeah, it's interesting the philosopher Nietzsche spoke quite a lot about that and
1: framed it in terms of it could be quite cruel because in some instances it can sort of prolong the pain of some inevitable disaster. So he he (laughs) I think he changed his mind in later life, but he was quite sort of gloomy at the beginning. And I also acknowledge fear. I think at the moment we're living almost in an epidemic of fear. So there's a small personal fears of I won't manage what I want, I won't get what I want, and then there there are the largest sort of global fears of what is to come. And, you know, the end of the world is nigh sort of editorial and newsreels that we're beaten up by every day. Mm. So we're in this sort of atmosphere of fear, which isn't very helpful. So I absolutely acknowledge and applaud and send lots of love to anyone who's trying to find an act on hope in the midst of being bombarded by fears. (laughs) However, I do think that hope gives us the energy and the fuel to take action continually, to take little steps and to keep taking steps. It requires both courage and imagination to say, I want to get here. And also the getting here, the having the courage and the imagination to imagine the future that you want to get to is useful, I think, because sometimes there's more than one route. So it might be, you don't get that route to where you want to get to, but you find another route. So I don't think anything in human endeavor, whether that's small and personal or enormous and world changing has ever happened without imagination first. And imagination takes courage. So I acknowledge those things. I think hope's always helpful. I think if you're trying to do something and you're hopeless, you're probably going to suffer. And I don't really want anyone to suffer and I don't want to suffer myself. So, though it can feel like you're protecting yourself from disappointment, it can deny you pleasure and joy. So I'd recommend being hopeful. Although at the same time I acknowledge that it takes courage because it's daring to imagine a future that you might not get to the way you hope to get to. Yeah,
0: that's such a good word. It is daring and it takes courage. I have like a vision board above where I'm recording and I have a really big quote which is a Brene Brown and it says courage over comfort. Because yeah. I think humans have a tendency, I know I do actually, and I know the science behind this as well, is that we do have a tendency for comfort. We have homeostasis, which means that our brains actually don't like changing. Mm. So I think it's such a good word that you use daring. It is daring to yeah. wish and dream and hope. And I think, you know, when you talk about fears, that's so wise as well. And I'm wondering, What fears are you working to overcome at the moment? And how are you doing that? Thank you for asking that. It's a good one. It's a big one as well.
1: For me, it's the main work at the moment. Like a friend of mine contacted me yesterday and she was like, I need to speak to you because the news is terrifying me and I can't get past it. And this is really common. It comes up all the time and I'm doing workshops with people in lots of different contexts. So I think you have to pay attention to how the stories you're receiving are making you feel and when I say stories because for me everything's about stories when I say stories I mean literally the BBC news if that's what you watch or your Facebook feed if that's what you're connecting with or the stories that your partner tells you over breakfast if they are making you feel anxious or despairing then they absolutely need to be limited because your unhappiness will never improve the world. Nothing's going to be improved by you being unhappy or despairing. So that has to be controlled and limited. And I think a very, very powerful way of combating it, your own despair or fear is, and I do this, is just doing the daily practice of looking for something hopeful. So at the moment, actually, I'm doing this thing called 21 Days of Hope, which is for 21 days because my friend said, and I know this is hotly contested, It takes 21 days to change a habit. So we could do this and change the habit of always noticing bad news. So I've been posting hopeful news stories every single day for 21 days. And actually, the process of doing it was really lovely. Sometimes it takes a little bit more time. The stories have been amazing. They've really cheered me up and sometimes made me laugh. And after the third day, people started sending me hopeful stories as well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, doing your
1: work for you. Beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, that was really good so that's been really useful I think it's kind of noticing when things make you feel despair or put you in a place of fear and the other thing is if you're scared of something whether that's a personal thing or a larger thing I would say to walk towards it so it's a bit like when you're little and you think there's a monster in the wardrobe I remember I have this and my mum was like come on come to the wardrobe and have a look there's not a monster in there there's something really powerful about walking towards your fear so for example I was really worried about the amount of plastic pollution in the sea. I kept worrying about it. I was like, this is ridiculous. I just need to get into it. So I researched it and I found an amazing amount of incredible innovation dealing with plastic pollution, dragging in plastic, loads of Dutch and Pakistani and Indian scientists and innovators using all sorts of things from mushrooms to giant ships to trawlers to deal with the plastic in the sea. So suddenly from being scared of this horrific problem – I was like, oh, my gosh, there's people all over the world just sorting it out. So I'd say if you're really scared of something, walk towards it and see what people are doing. There will be someone doing something amazing. And if you are noticing that the stories you're receiving and making you feel fearful or despairing, find the other stories because they exist.
0: That's yes. it's so important, so important. And thank you for talking about the news, you know, and our minds are literally you know, we get to choose what we fill them with. And I had such a brilliant experience of this because I decided I wanted a natural pain-free home birth. (laughs) One of the things that I knew, that was my intention. I had no idea if it was possible, if that's the way things were going to unfold for me. And I was actually holding it quite loosely, but I knew that I could not pollute my brain with negative stories. So I became like absolutely... The most boundaried I think I've ever been an evangelical about not letting any negative stories pollute my thinking about this experience. And I flooded my brain. I was speaking to people. I would watch YouTube nonstop of these beautiful, natural, pain-free births that I intended to have. And do you know what? I think that was the biggest thing that enabled me to, that's what I had. Because our minds are so powerful. They are more powerful than, you know, I think even the top scientists, you know, understand. And uh, many will say that we know so little about the brain. You know, I was reflecting on this the other day, that I need to take more of that ruthless boundaries around what I am putting in my brain. Is it polluting me? Or is it helping me get to my intention? You know, if my intention, as yours is, is to feel joy and hope and imagination and curiosity, I can't have that if I'm watching the BBC news. Because to me, they focus on the negative. That's just what sells. You know, so I actually don't really consume much news. It's really tricky, isn't it? Because there is a middle place, I think, where you can
1: go, okay, that's going on. And actually, I do need to know about that because... I don't know, for example, it's worth knowing if there's an environmental disaster because the, you might know people there. I think we do need to sort of know what's going on in the world. And we also need hope so that we can experience, that we can have happy lives and so that we can be proactive and have the courage to take action. But finding that middle place is really difficult. And I think it's completely understandable and okay to just say, I'm just going to disengage with that. And also, what you said was really interesting because actually, the news is really shifting in that there's an enormous, growing, demonstrable appetite for a different kind of story. And so, in some ways, the accepted sort of truth that bad news sells is actually beginning to shift a little bit because there's lots of people like yourself, and then lots of people who are just saying, Yeah, I'm not going to look at that because how can I engage with that and be a happy person? Or how can I engage with that and just go about my daily life Mm. and so I think in a way by disengaging and certainly not by sharing those stories we might start to see a shift so that there's a bit of a rebalancing so it's not all negative fear-driven stories by all means tell us what's going wrong in the world but please present us with solutions or ways we can engage positively and so I support a number of organizations I'm a co-owner of Positive News which is about Promoting solutions driven journalism. Yeah,
0: I love positive news.
1: Yeah, and I'm compiling this directory of hope. I've got a small version in the book, but I'm making a bigger version which has got basically gonna have all the resources that I can possibly find.
0: Just saying, go here if you want to find out. I think that's such an important distinction. It's you're absolutely right. You know, it is not about disconnecting from reality and trying to live on this kind of pink cloud and putting our metaphorical fingers in our ears and saying everything's fine I don't think that's what I'm doing maybe I need to check in with myself but I think what is the difference as you say is that we can we, we know what's going on around the important things in the world that interest us that are our passion and then the kind of second piece of the puzzle which kind of is a beautiful loop back actually to start to close is that You know, what your book really talks about is hope is action. So, yes, I can read about the fires or the floods or the wars, but I can also think about, okay, what is a tiny thing that I might be able to do to help? And I think that's where the hope comes from, isn't it? To overcome that. And that currently isn't covered in mainstream media at all. I really would love to see that change. I think it will, as you say. Yeah, it'll be Um, interesting, won't it? Yeah, I follow some amazing activists on Instagram and, you know, they will share horrific things. There's a collective of these women and they have this boundary that they will only share with an action. Yeah. This is what's happening and this is what you can do about it. And that action is really small often, you know, and it's really doable. It's incredibly important. I think you're absolutely right because
1: otherwise what are you getting from that? Oh, there's a really horrible, terrible problem that I am absolutely powerless to do anything. (laughs) about. It's kind of pointless. It just makes you miserable and it doesn't help the suffering. Whereas absolutely there's always something that can be done. There's always things that you can do and those things, they need to be small. They need to be doable. They need to be things you can do at home without needing loads and loads of money. And there's loads of them. So I've tried to sort of really encourage that and talk about that in the book. Like you, I'm a big fan of small doable actions. There's always something you can do and you can have fun doing it. That's the other really important thing. It's beautiful, you know, to get our children involved with. Yeah. So I do a lot of tree planting as well. And there's always kids involved with that. There's all ages actually involved with that. So that's really lovely because it's like planting a tree is a definite, okay, this is in a small way, going to help towards combating air pollution, et cetera, et cetera, and um, helping wildlife, biodiversity, et cetera. But it's really lovely with kids because there's a few kids actually with trees that we planted a few years ago who've come back to the tree they've planted, and the tree's like
0: three times as tall as them. Oh, so lovely. I it's know. The ulti- it's the ultimate metaphor for hope, right? Planting a little seed yeah. for a tree which may grow – you know, may mature after the person who has long gone, you know, it's like the ultimate, the ultimate paying it forward. It's so beautiful. And I've loved this conversation this morning. I feel really connected to this idea that we are all one, you know, on this living, breathing planet and actually self-care is other care. It's such a beautiful message that I'm going to take into my day. So thank you. And I always ask the same question at the end of every episode which is if you could give just one gift to every mother in the world, and mother in its broadest definition, what would you give and why? So it's such a brilliant question,
1: and it made me think in a really lovely way of those kind of fairy tales. You're like the person at the party who's allowed to to give all the mums a gift. I'm going to be ambitious, I think. So I would like to give every mother a period of time in every single day to herself nobody's demanding anything of them nobody's asking anything of them just a little bit of time for themselves and in that moment they have some time to acknowledge what they've achieved that day the wonder (laughs) and the marvelousness of them and what they've achieved what they've done how amazing they are and also to sort of recall the joy and the beauty of that day and I'd like to do that because I think time and space That's so precious and I know it's difficult probably sometimes blooming impossible if you're busy like nearly all human adults are busy to get that but I would like to give that to to all mothers because I think we need it we just need a moment even if it's a tiny moment to say I'm here at the moment nobody's asking me for anything I'm just sitting with myself and this is what I did today and this was the beauty of today
0: Mm, that's so beautiful thank you thank you it's been so lovely to speak with you yeah it's been a joy so that was the episode i hope that you really enjoyed it as ever if you did please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on itunes it really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom Of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes, well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So, the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step simple applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger calmer and therefore to support your children in a different way it's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience it's just 25 pounds currently and if you work for the nhs it is totally free for you so check out the website familyresetplan.co.uk take care i'll see you next time